Good morning. It is um, so good to be with you. I want to uh, echo uh, some of what Matt said, all the good stuff we can about me we can uh, just thank the Lord for. But I do uh, thank the Lord for the genuine friendship and fellowship we've come to have as brothers in Christ and fellow ministers of the gospel. I have... Uh, given thanks from afar for you and God's work here and what I trust will be a transgenerational and cross-generational work in the years to come. As a pastor, I often envisioned years of investment of the Word of God in the lives of young and old to watch the old uh, disciple the young and watch the young grow in the Lord Jesus, watch fathers and mothers grow and disciple their children to love them and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, uh, and I got to see some of that. But uh, I, I am grateful to see that God has put here someone who has a heart uh, for um, life-changing, next-generation-minded gospel ministry. And so thank the Lord for that. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Thank you for this privilege. And I understand that you've been going through a series on discipleship, and we'll address uh, an aspect of that this morning. Uh, and having said that, what does a Christian look like? What sets him or her apart? Is it the hair? Maybe you have a certain hairdo, then you look like a Christian. I grew up in a time when hair was a big issue. That was a long time ago, but some of you might remember that. Uh, I mean, uh, hair made a statement. And I can remember a time when, and I, this is just sort of a, a, an aside, but it can show how we get distracted by something that is at best secondary. Uh, but I had friends who were rebellious, and their hair was a symbol of that rebellion. And I wanted to follow after them, but my dad let it be known quickly and certainly that I would cut my hair. Well, I learned over the years that hair is not a mark of a Christian. There are other things. Maybe it's the expression on the face, a certain sober somber, serious, holy expression. That's certain soberness that other people don't have. The world in its unbelief has certain ideas about what a Christian is, how they act, how we think. Sometimes Christians are influenced, even intimidated, by what the world thinks. It's easy to get there, isn't it? The world has a certain sway. We're surrounded by it, almost flooded with its thoughts, its concepts, its priorities, its way of thinking and looking at things. And it's easy to be intimidated and even influenced by what the world thinks with regards to what a Christian is, what a Christian looks like or should act like. There are certain scriptural markers. There are certain things 
that the Bible says characteristics of genuine Christians. Obedience, love, love for the Word, walking in the light of God's Word, growing in Christ's likeness, awareness of and confession of sin, recognition of error, and continuance in the faith. These are all certain characteristics that should be so of you and me if we know and follow Jesus. And with all of this confronting us, we should be interested, I think, to know what Jesus says about the matter. If Jesus says that Christians should look like this, or this should be so of you and me, wouldn't we want to know? Because if our Lord points something out as an important as important regarding the mark of a genuine Christian, then we'd better pay attention. And it's interesting to me that while we could go back and look at the Lord's preaching and teaching ministry and see some things, probably extract some things that we would say are characteristics of a Christian, there is one thing that Jesus said is the mark. Of a Christian, of a disciple. He puts his finger on this one thing, and it's found just not coincidentally in our text this morning. In John chapter 13, we're going to read, just read right now, verses 34 and 35. But we're going to look at a lot more than that because in order to understand what Jesus said in these verses, we need to look at some other things as well. But John chapter 13, verse 34, I'll give you some time to get there. And I believe if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew for you. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So let's look at this love, this mark of a genuine disciple. I've entitled my message, How Can You Tell? How Can You Tell? If someone, if you, are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at three main things and then some other subpoints that I believe help us to understand what Jesus said in these verses. It's much broader than simply this because this is said uh, in the midst of some very important events and activities that went on in this chapter. So... The first thing I want us to notice is the context of a disciple's love. The context. When it comes to interpreting Scripture, context is king. And the context in which Jesus makes this important statement that we just read sheds light on a very important aspect of discipleship. If we go back to the first part of chapter 13 and read verses 1 through 5, we, we get something of the context of what Jesus is saying when he says, By this shall all men know if you are my disciples. Verse 1, 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, arose from supper and laid aside his garments took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. To fully get the point, we need to see both the immediate and the broader context. You know, have you noticed, uh, our brother mentioned politics a moment ago, have you noticed and I'm not going very far over this, so you don't have to get too worried. But have you noticed when you watch television or listen to the radio, and you listen to news reports, that your understanding of what is reported is affected very much by both the immediate and broader context of what has been reported. And a lot of times that's left out. Or it's skewed or made to sound like it happened in a certain context when it's something else. And in the case of what Jesus says, when he says, by this shall all know that you are my disciples, there is an immediate context and a broader context. And so I want us to see that. And the immediate context we will call the corruption. The corruption. In these five verses, we are introduced really rather quickly and almost in a passing manner, the immediate context of corruption that was a part of the physical lives of the disciples. Probably no custom in Scripture seems so foreign, well, there may be some others, especially in the Old Testament, but so foreign to the modern Christian than foot washing. With no context, it might seem just a cool thing to do at a retreat. But there's much more to it than that. The washing of a visitor's feet was an act of hospitality, but in some sense it was a necessity. The streets were dirt, traveled by humans and animals alike. When a visitor came through the door, not only were they dirty, they were smelly. If dinner was to be enjoyed, a good foot washing was in order. That's the immediate context. Simple as that. We wouldn't think of asking people. We might ask them to please remove their shoes, but we wouldn't think they should remove their socks and that we should offer them a good foot washing. But in that day, it was quite normal, quite customary, almost, if not done, in fact, there was a time when Jesus came into the house of a certain Pharisee and Jesus brought up the point after the woman had wept profusely on his feet and wiped them with the hair of her head. He brought up to the judgmental Pharisee, I came in and you didn't even offer to wash my feet. It was that customary. That's the immediate context. But then <clears throat> the broader context we will call the church. Now, you might look closely in those five verses, and Jesus talks about 
His hour was coming. He loved his own. He loved them to the end. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet. Not one mention of the word church. So if you're a thinking person and you're paying attention, you might ask, where's the church in all this? And that's a fair and good question. And if you said nowhere, you would be in some sense right. But although the New Testament church does not technically exist during Jesus' ministry, and this is important in understanding the four Gospels and Jesus' ministry, the church always looms large on the horizon of Jesus' ministry. Always. It is always in view. You ever hear, have someone come and talk to you about something and they sort of chat and give small talk? And you always get the feeling that we're going somewhere else with this. I'm, I, there's a punchline. There's a, a but coming. All that Jesus taught, which was not small talk, was all important, but it was all with the church in view. And in particular, Christ worked with the twelve. The church was in view. Because the twelve, the apostles, as they came to be known, they were disciples, but they were the apostles, would be the nucleus behind the church and the early leadership of the church. In Matthew, and just to give you some, some gospel uh, background for that in Matthew 16, if you were to go there, and you might make a note and you can go later, but in Matthew 16 we see the authority of the church. All authority is given to me. Uh, he, and, and in that authority, Jesus says, I will build my church. And then in Matthew 18, we see something about the purity of the church. If there's a, an offense, if someone needs to be addressed, we address them individually, we address them uh, with a smaller group, and then corporately in the church. In Matthew 28, we see something about the responsibility of the church. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach them. Then here, in this chapter, we see something about the humility of the church. Nowhere, I don't think, does the church loom larger than here? Christ loving his own, washing the disciples' feet, who in just a few weeks, who these disciples in a few weeks would be baptized by the Spirit as the New Testament church. This is something that will come up again in the body of Christ when Paul is talking to Timothy, instructing him about the church and how it should behave itself. When he talks about widows being brought into the, the zone as widows whom the church would support and help, he says, one of the things he says about them is that they should be known to have washed the disciples' feet. The church is in view. This is the broader context. The church is just, as we would say, around the corner. This is the broader context. There's a more important aspect of this context that I'm talking about, and that is the cross. Now that is hinted at here very strongly, but let's go to verses 18 and 19. We've read verses 1 through 5, 
He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. And he has just said that. Um, he said, I do not just speak concerning all of you. Uh, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats his bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. If you have read the Bible much, you recognize that phrase, lifted up his heel. It's originally found in Genesis after the fall when God promises uh, Eve that her descendant, one of her descendants, would be involved in something that would involve this very thing, the devil lifting up his heel against her descendant and her descendant crushing the heel of the serpent or the devil. <clears throat> now, I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am. Or as our translation says, I am He. The cross is coming. As the next few hours unfolded, Jesus would be betrayed, beaten, and crucified. The act of foot washing was a, a foreshadowing of His greatest act of humility, His crucifixion for our sins. Where, as R.C. Sproul says, Jesus did not lay aside His deity, but He did lay aside His dignity when He emptied Himself. And as another has said, he laid, aside, he, didn't, he laid aside the prerogatives of deity. I hope you're getting something of the sense of what's going on here. Christ giving a sneak preview of his humility, his willingness to lay down his life, to put aside his rights and prerogatives as God, the cross before him, the Lord of heaven and earth, washes the feet of his disciples just hours before he would pay the price for their sins. He even washed the dirty, stinky feet of his betrayer, Judas. This is the context of a disciple's love. The second thing I want us to notice is the contrition of a disciple's love. Contrition, not a word we use that much, but if you've read the scriptures, I'm not sure how it comes through in all the translations. It's very recognizable in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees the Lord and he hears the angels, the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And then uh, he, he's just ruined, crushed in the presence of holy God. He's, he experiences that sense of contrition, brokenness. If the act of foot washing was more than an object lesson on Jesus' love for his disciples, although it was that, it was something that had personal application for the disciples and for you and for me. Because if the disciples were to follow Christ and to be His church, which they were, they would, they would, in a manner of speaking, have to practice foot washing. Did you get that? If they were going to be disciples, they were going to have to practice foot washing. Look at verse 12 and following. The, 
So when, when he had washed their feet, taking his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? And they're probably, I, I don't want to impose anything on Scripture, but just knowing human nature as I do, they're probably thinking, I don't have a clue. I mean, Jesus, whom they had come to see as the Christ, the Son of the living God, had just done what only menial servants did. One of the nastiest responsibilities. So when he says that, he knows they don't get it yet. Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for I am, so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who, sent, who is sent greater than his master, greater than he who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If, let's repeat that one more time. If the disciples were to follow Christ and to be his church, they would, in a manner of speaking, have to practice foot washing. But they would need to understand it, even as we must understand it. Because you cannot love the way Christ has displayed it without a poor and contrite spirit. Yeah, isn't it interesting how we fail to see as essential some of the things that are most essential in Scripture? And this is one of them. A poor and contrite spirit. The very thing you and I chafe at, resist. That the disciples chafed at and resisted. How often were the times when they fussed over argued over who was the greatest who had to do this or that I, I, I won't do that he can do it she can do it the contrition of a disciple's love what is this contrition well it is the contrition of acknowledged sinfulness acknowledged Sinfulness. Now, we should be familiar with that because John, one of these disciples, apostles, comes to us with, uh, if, with this. When he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, further act of deception. But if we confess, if we acknowledge, agree that we have sinned. Then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, there was probably not a better apostle or disciple to illustrate this point than Peter. He was impetuous, quick-tempered, and prideful. Something probably none of us know anything about. But when Jesus approaches him with the water and towel, he reacts and refuses. You will never wash my feet. Peter just didn't get the point. He did not understand. 
But Jesus clarified the point for Peter. Foot washing is not a matter of salvation, and we'll explain this further in just a moment. But foot washing is not a matter of salvation, it's a matter of sanctification. And he's going to explain that in our next point, which is this, the contrition of acknowledged neediness. Not only the contrition of acknowledged sinfulness, but acknowledged neediness. We see it there in those verses when, well, in the previous verses, verse 9. Simon says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So first, if Peter's response is, you'll never wash my feet. I'm not having it. But then when Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Then Peter, in his typical all-or-nothing response, says, well, then just wash everything. I want a bath. If that's what it takes, I don't want just my feet washed. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you, and he's referring there to Judas, because not all of them were washed now, the question then is, who needs foot washing? <clears throat> Jesus even uses the word there. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Jesus, see, answers the question. Disciples need foot washing. Peter's misunderstanding and reaction to Christ's foot washing provided an opportunity for Explanation and application. Peter only saw the external reality of Christ's actions. He missed the spiritual reality. So Jesus reveals it to him in the use of two similar but different words. In the original, I hope you don't mind, I don't want to sound like a Greek class, but in the original he uses two words for wash. One word, luo, means to bathe. For instance, what you do when you take a bath or a shower. You wash your whole body. The other word, nipto, means to wash in extremity like the hands. You know, as fastidious and nutty as things have gotten with COVID, nobody suggests that every time you meet someone you should take a bath. You wash your hands to get the germs off because you may touch or be close touch something somebody else touches. So the word nipto is referring to that washing of something like that, or in particular here, the feet. So when Jesus came to Peter, he was going to wash, nipto, his feet. <clears throat> Why? Because Peter had been out in the street, like all the other disciples, like Jesus himself. His feet were dirty, smelly. They had, he had walked through dirt, manure. But Peter couldn't imagine his Lord doing this. That's why he reacted the way he did, not understanding what Jesus was up to, what Jesus was illustrating and explaining, all of which we haven't even gotten to yet. <clears throat> no, I'm not going to have it. And when Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, then you don't have any part with me. And then Peter, missing a point, says, well, then wash me. But Peter didn't see what Jesus was saying. You, you've been washed. In fact, he says that later. You've all been washed except for one. Well, not all, 
And he's referring to Judas. And then later he says, what I'm doing you really don't understand now, but you will. But what was Jesus illustrating? He was illustrating the disciples, our neediness as believers, as followers of Jesus for cleansing. That washing, that nipto, as the Greek has it, not the luo, the bath, but the of our feet because they get dirty. Don't we? We get dirty. The world affects us. We all too often grab and touch, even come close to embracing certain aspects of the world's way of living, looking at things and doing things that are not biblical, that affect us spiritually. We need that foot washing. So that's the contrition of acknowledged neediness. And akin to that is the contrition of acknowledged helplessness. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. He's completely clean. He's had the bath. She's had the bath. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, there is in the wording of this passage a sense of utter dependence communicated. We who know Christ have been washed or bathed. We, we sing the song, Washed in the Blood of the Lamb. Revelation 1.5 says, He saved us and washed us with His own blood. Now, Again, in the original, there's a participle used here, and the form is what we call the perfect tense. The perfect tense is a very important tense in the Greek because it spoke of something that had happened in the past but had ongoing and lasting results into the present and on. And so when he says to them, he who is bathed, the New King James says, I don't know how it reads in the ESV, but he, he's really saying, he who has been bathed, he who has had a bath, she who has been bathed, needs only to wash his feet. There is, there is both this lasting sense, this past action, lasting effect upon the recipient, that is the disciple, the believer, but not just that, it's in the passive voice, which means the person talked to who, whom Jesus is talking about here didn't do this to themselves. Someone else did it for them. And that's exactly what has happened to each of you who know Christ, to me, is that we have been bathed, not of our own ability. You wash yourself a thousand times in your own strength with your own ideas of getting clean and your soul would be just as dirty as when you started. But in this, Jesus explains in a word that we are the needy ones, the helpless ones who need for him to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And that's exactly what he has done. If you know Christ, if you are saved, if you are a disciple, 
You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You have been, you have had done for you what you could not do for yourself. You have been cleansed by the work of Christ. And it does have lasting, everlasting consequences, results. So, then though, there is a need. We go back and forth from this neediness and helplessness for something to deal with this dirt on our feet, this remaining sin or sins. So what is that? That's the nip back to the nip toe. That's that cleansing, which, by the way, we can't do for ourselves either, even as believers. We do not have, as believers, the innate ability to get ourselves right with God. God has provided that. So Jesus sits at the right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us. We confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Talk about clean feet. Now that's a great thought. In both cases, we are faced with our inability and helplessness. And so this is the contrition we talk about. We ought to practice this by thinking upon it regularly. Our time of confession should cause us to remember and acknowledge our sinfulness, our neediness, our helplessness. This is all in this context of what Jesus is going to say in the last part of the chapter. Which leads us to, finally, the consequence of a disciple's love. <clears throat> the consequence of a disciple's love. When we say something is of consequence, we say it matters. When we say it is of great consequence, we say it matters greatly. And what Christ has done and said here is of great consequence. And it is of great consequence when we follow our Lord in this. Jesus just could have said, or the scriptures could have just written just those two verses, and we would have known that we should love one another. But would we have known the degree to which we should love one another as the body of Christ if Jesus had not done all of what we've just seen? I don't think so. I think that's the point. I learned many years ago, and I'm afraid... I'm still learning that I don't so much mind being a servant. What I do mind is being treated like a servant. And every once in a while, the Lord brings something along to remind me of that. I say it again. I think this is true of many of us. It's not that we mind serving, but we don't want to be treated like a servant or thought of as a servant. But Jesus came unto his own 
and his own did not receive him. He came unto his own things, and his own people did not receive him. He owned it. He was despised and rejected of mankind. He was in form and substance God, but he did not grasp tightly to his equality with God. He humbled himself. When the people of God, his disciples, his church, think and act in this fashion, something happens. We may not realize it. It may be hard for us to grasp. It's something the world knows nothing about. But there's a dynamic involved in this that we must trust God causes something to happen. Many things, perhaps, to happen. And so, what is foot washing? And what is this mark of a genuine disciple? Well, first, fish wa foot washing is the identifying mark of a disciple. Y'all had a foot washing service lately? I wouldn't expect that you would. And I'm not going to encourage you to do that. But foot washing as Jesus explains it, is an identifying mark of a disciple. If you don't wash the disciples' feet, you're not exhibiting, you're not exemplifying, you're not illustrating, you're not showing what is, what Christ has called, the identifying mark of a disciple. Jesus could have spoken of all sorts of things. Later, his disciples who write the scriptures give us many things that are a part of what it means to be a disciple. But this is the thing Jesus says is the identifying mark of a disciple. Did you see it in chapter 13, verse 34, when he says, I'm giving you a command to love one another as I have loved you. He just said earlier, what I'm doing you don't understand, but you're going to understand. He's further explaining what he did. As I have loved you, so you also love one another. By this, by this love, by the kind of love he exhibited, all will know that you are my disciples. So whatever foot washing is, we need to learn it. And we need to do it. It is the identifying mark of a disciple, according to Jesus, and that's pretty high authority. But it is also the edifying mark of a disciple. It gets better. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed, King James says, happy are you if you do them. Now what does that tell you and me? That this kind of love, this foot washing, edifies Christians, the body. Remember, the church is in view. The body of Christ is in view. The corporate temple of God 
He abides in us and among us is in view. If you do these things, happy, blessed are you. If you know these things and do them. So Jesus is telling the core of the church, the 12 apostles, well, 11 of whom would be the core of the church, he is telling them, if you know this, if you get this, there's blessing and edification and joy, happiness in the Lord, in the kingdom, among the people of God. If you get this. So get this. It is the edifying mark of a disciple, of the disciples. And then it is the glorifying mark of a disciple. Look at verse 35. Now, that was our text. You know, I'm actually preaching this message in about a week and a half. So this is my trial run. Thanks to Matt. And... Um, as I thought through the passage, I've been thinking about this passage for some time and then doing some study and working it in in my work schedule in the evenings or whatever. And it just on the surface, if we just don't think through a passage and see what the Lord is saying and doing, we might miss something here. There's more to this than just simply a cute little exercise in humility and doing something good. This, Jesus says, is the glorifying mark of a disciple. So we look beyond verses 34 and 35 so that we get to verses 34 and 35, and in particular now, verse 35. By this, all will know what? That you're good guys, that you take care of each other, that you're not stuck on yourself. Well, that might all be true. That's not the main point. You will know that, they will know that you are disciples mine you know as humans we like putting me and i in the middle of everything right because what matters to us is me i my stuff my time my fun my money there's only one person that has that right there's only one person who when he says me, my, I am important. It is true, and it is always true, and that is Christ. That is God himself, God the Son. And that's what he's saying here. By this, foot washing, contrition, rightly understood, applied among the people of God as disciples, followers of Christ, do what? They make known that you are my disciples. They make me show up to others. First to the body, then to the world. Foot washing is a mark, is a, an identifying mark of a disciple. It is an edifying mark. And it is a glorifying mark. So, if you're a Christian, 
you're a disciple. A disciple is not a special Christian that's grown to be a certain maturity. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. You may be a new one. You may be one not as mature as another one, but we're all on the road. We're all following Jesus. A disciple always is always following, learning, and growing. If we are the church of Jesus Christ, if we are the community of disciples, we are always loving. Yeah, sometimes we falter on that. But we love one another. Again, 1 John. I wonder if John had some of this in mind. You know, he wrote this gospel. Some believe that 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, especially 1st John, was written sort of as a cover letter for the gospel of John. So that's why you see certain themes in, the, in uh, John's letter that really are full-blown in the gospel of John. But by this shall all men know. We love one another. John brings it out in his little letter. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. It's interesting that Paul said that as a therefore to the verse before, which says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not faint. Let us, therefore, do good to all, especially those of the household of faith, the church. <clears throat> How can we tell if we are disciples? They wash the feet of other disciples. Not literally, but very genuinely. By selfless, self-forgetting, Unrestrained service. As they do, they are not only identified as disciples, but the church is edified, and our very worthy Lord Jesus is glorified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for showing us so clearly something so very important. Forgive us for thinking so much of ourselves that we lose sight of this. Help us to take this to heart in our homes, with our spouses, children with their parents, and then corporately together as the body of Christ may foot washing the kind Jesus is talking to us about, become a regular part of the way we live, the way we function as the people of God. Make it so. Help us to see it and help us to embrace it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we become the disciples of Christ, um, from the outside looking in, the world looking